When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Welcome back, my friends. To this point in our study of the war chapters, we've been seeing what the enemy has been up to. We've seen that their defining actions are those of opposition and abandonment and apathy. We've seen their defining objectives as a search for power and possession, ambition and greed. And we've seen that the sins that define them are hatred, anger, stubbornness, abusiveness, laziness, vengefulness, rashness, callousness. Keep an eye out for those sins through these chapters. But scattered throughout them, amidst all of these tactics of the enemy, we also see the strategies of the righteous. We don't just meet Zarahemna and Amalekiah, Morianton or the kingmen. We meet Captain Moroni and Teancum and Pahoran and the freemen. We see dissenters, but we also see disciples apostates on one side, but prophets and high priests on the other. How do they wage this war? How do we win ours? We'll see a lot of those principles in these chapters today. But the first one I want to spend some time on is something that comes up, as I see it, more frequently than any other single thing through these chapters. And that is to be inspired by a better cause, to know what cause we're fighting for to fully embrace it and to let it inspire you. You see, the Nephites fully understood what they were up against. If you go back to chapter 43 and look at verse 13, notice the two sides of the war. It's talking about the anti-Nephi-Lehi's that cannot provide manpower, but in verse 13, they do provide a large portion of their substance to support their armies. But even with that support, the Nephites were compelled to stand alone against the opposition, which consisted of Lamanites, who were a compound of Laman and Lemuel, and the sons of Ishmael, and here's the worst part, all those who had dissented from the Nephites, who were the Amalekites and Zoramites and descendants of the priests of Noah. That's the Amulonites. All kinds of ites on that side. Not just the Lamanites themselves, the, the OG enemies but you have all these dissenters. So this is David versus Goliath. This is the small band of believers against the growing numbers of disbelievers. But far more important than population was motivation. And as you see in chapter 43, verse 45, it says that the Nephites were inspired by a better cause. And that makes all the difference. They were not fighting for monarchy nor power. We start to see these two opposing forces marshal behind two different causes. The opposition was fighting for monarchy or power, whereas the Nephites were fighting for their homes and their liberties 
their wives and their children, and their all, yea, for their rites of worship and their church. I love that. That's all for them. That's everything to them. We'll see reminders of that cause frequently through the war chapters. And you can often compare it to the cause of the Lamanites. In chapter 44, verse 2, Captain Moroni questions the justness of Zarahemna's cause. He says, We have not come out to battle against you, that we might shed your blood for power. Remember, it was power and possessions, pride and ambition, that were the two big motivators among the enemy. That's not why we're here. We're not after power. Neither do we desire to bring anyone to the yoke of bondage. But this is the very cause for which ye have come against us. Yea, and ye are angry with us because of our religion. For all the reasons that they oppose religion we talked about last time, right? This rival authority, something that stood in the way of their vain ambitions. The presence of the genuine article, which made the counterfeits all the more glaring. The real cause, which made the enemy's cause seem so paltry and selfish. Captain Moroni wasn't the only one to think that. If you go to 46.29, by now Zarahemna is long gone, but Amalekiah is there, and he has a very similar cause, right? He's seeking power and authority as well. But notice this detail in 46.29. When Amalekiah saw that the people of Moroni were more numerous than the Amalekiahites, this is before he goes and takes over the entire Lamanite nation. This is just his initial group. When they see that they're outnumbered, and then this interesting detail, and he also saw that his people were doubtful concerning the justice of the cause in which they had undertaken. You see that? He knows he doesn't have a leg to stand on. No wonder he's got to build towers and get persuasive men to preach their falsehoods. To just try to keep convincing the wicked that wickedness really is happiness. That selfishness really will lead to prosperity. That making me your king so that I can rule over you is really going to make you better in the long run. You'll get ahead too, just like I am. Now, talk about a doubtful cause. And when people really start thinking about that, why am I doing this? I think that's a fascinating question. If you can ask it without becoming contentious. When someone is fighting against the church, what is their cause? Especially if they can get past the negative, the destructive element. Okay, so you're trying to tear down the church. I get it. But what are you trying to build in its place? So often it is deconstruction rather than reconstruction that I'm hearing. What are you offering in its place? Please, rather than tell me what's wrong with my beliefs, tell me what's right about yours. Instead of just taking swings at my cause, please help me understand yours. Again, I'm not trying to become combative or contentious. I would just love to know what is your cause? What are you trying to accomplish here? I read a book recently called The Crisis of Doubt. Not a crisis of faith, a crisis of doubt. And it told the story of a bunch of 19th century Englishmen that had risen to high authority in the ranks of the non-believing, skeptics, free thinkers, people that were trying to attack organized religion. And this particular book told the stories of their return to the faith, the faith that they had spent years attacking. And one of the common denominators for so many of them was becoming 
doubtful concerning the justice of the cause in which they had undertaken. They realized, I'm only tearing something down. I'm not building anything up in its place. Do I have anything positive to offer? Or just anti-religious negativity? And like I said, that was the, one of the first steps in them coming to themselves, in giving religion a second chance of dusting off the Bible and beginning to read it again, and eventually returning wholeheartedly to the faith. It might be worth considering or inviting other people to consider. What is your cause? And is it a just one? If you fast forward, this one's beyond this week's material and into next week's, but since it's on this same subject, after Amalekiah dies and his brother Amaron takes the reins, in chapter 55, verse 1, Captain Moroni is so angry with Amaron. And why? Because he knew that Amaron had a perfect knowledge of his fraud. Yea, he knew that Amaron knew that it was not a just cause that had caused him to wage a war against the people of Nephi. Honestly, the word cause comes up so many times through the war chapters. And I'm trying to set that stage from the beginning, that here you have these two rival causes, one of which is selfless and just, and the other is selfish and unjust, and they know it. Knowing your cause can make such a difference. When David went to face Goliath, it's one of the things he said to his fearful brothers. Is there not a cause? When Joseph Smith was in hiding during a period of persecution in Nauvoo, writing a letter to the saints to rally the troops, what does he say? Brethren, shall we not go on in so great a cause? Go forward and not backward. Courage, brethren, and on, on to the victory. That's the cause the early saints were engaged in. And it was the call to the cause that inspired their incredible accomplishments. In section 6 and 11 and 12, the Revelation says to seek to bring forth and establish the cause of Zion. In section 30, you shall ever open your mouth in my cause. In 24, Oliver Cowdery is told, don't suppose that you can say enough in my cause. In section 78, they were called to advance the cause which ye have espoused to the salvation of man and the glory of your Father who is in heaven. In section 98, whoso layeth down his life in my cause shall find it again, even life eternal. Section 109 describes the cause of thy people. And 124 speaks of the cause of the poor and the needy. It was the cause that inspired the saints. The kingdom of God or bust, some wrote on the sides of their covered wagons. Is there not a cause? You better believe there is. There's a reason to be faithful, a reason to be strong, a reason to serve, to go on missions, to magnify callings, to honor the priesthood, to keep our covenants, to follow prophets. This is the cause of Christ. There's no greater cause or call to be a part of. Remember, these Nephites were inspired by a better cause. Back in chapter 43, in verse 8, where we learned that Zarahemna's designs were to stir up the Lamanites to anger so that he could usurp great power over the Lamanites and gain power over the Nephites. That's his cause, right? Self-aggrandizement, self-empowerment, compared to verse 9. Now the design, or we could say the cause, of the Nephites was to support their lands and their houses and their wives and their children. 
that they might preserve them from the hands of their enemies, and also that they might preserve their rights and their privileges, yea, and also their liberty, that they might worship God according to their desires. It's one of the reasons I love the 11th article of faith. It's the only one that doesn't say, we believe. Now, why break the streak, Joseph? Were you just getting tired of saying the same thing? You didn't want to be that redundant? Then why go back to we believe for number 12 and 13? It's because what number 11 is espousing isn't about belief alone. Because the 11th article of faith is about religious freedom, which isn't something we merely believe in. It's something that we actively claim. We claim the privilege, and privilege it is, of worshiping Almighty God according to the dictates of our own conscience, and allow all other men the same privilege. Let them worship how, where, or what they may. Let them not worship at all if that's their choice. The Nephites were allowing for that as well. But we claim our privilege. That is part of our cause. And we will not stand idly by and watch it taken from us. The cause demands something more than that. You see this cause invoked over and over and over again. In verse 30, Moroni knew that it was the only desire of the Nephites. This was their full cause, to preserve their lands and their liberty and their church. Therefore, he thought it no sin that he should defend them by stratagem. It's interesting that he would even be concerned about that. All's fair in love and war, they say, right? Well, no. There's something called just war theory of what kinds of things are permissible or not permissible, even during war. There even seems in this verse to be a concern over strategy. Are we allowed to even use that? Or is it always supposed to be just two standing armies facing off in the open field? We already saw last time that Jacob, the Zoramite leader, was unwilling to do that. So Moroni and Teancum's only option was some kind of strategy to coax them out of their stronghold. But what was it that convinced them that strategy at all was allowed? The justness of their cause. Our only desire is to preserve our lands and our liberties, our family and our faith. And that is a cause worth defending. In 43-46, this is right after it said they were inspired by a better cause, defining it with faith and family. In 46, they were doing that which they felt was the duty which they owed to their God. They weren't guilty of the first offense. They weren't guilty of the second. They had already turned the other cheek, but they were not going to suffer themselves to be slain by the hands of their enemies. This was their duty to God. In 47, the Lord had said unto them, Ye shall defend your families even unto bloodshed. Therefore, for this cause, again, the righteousness of their cause, that's why they were fighting the Lamanites, to defend themselves and their families and their lands, their country, their rights, their religion. And in 48, just when the men of Moroni were about to shrink and flee from the Lamanites because their anger was so fierce, when Moroni perceived that intent, that weakening of the knees, he sent forth and inspired their hearts with these thoughts. Yea, the thoughts of their lands and their liberty, their freedom from bondage. It was the cause that inspired them. In 49, when they turned back on the Lamanites with renewed vigor, they cried with one voice unto the Lord their God for their liberty and their freedom from bondage. Their cause trumped their enemy's cause, and it steeled their nerves against them. And all of this, by the way, 
comes before the famous passage about the title of liberty. The title of liberty was simply making visible the cause that they've been fighting for all along. Chapter 46, verse 12 is where you see it. Moroni rends his coat. Even that has symbolic power. The sign of contrition. When someone is repenting of their sins and they rend their clothing and sit down in the dirt and sackcloth and ashes. So much symbolism there. This could be a token that some were tearing themselves away from the Lord or seeking to rip apart the church of God. A token that they were willing to be torn apart themselves if they should ever break their covenant. But on this rent coat, he takes a piece and writes, In memory of our God, our religion and freedom and our peace, our wives and our children. That was the cause. Here's a man who was not afraid to wear his religion, to have his beliefs emblazoned on what would be most visible before the people. He fastens it upon the end of a pole and then in 13 suits up, puts on his headplate and breastplate, his shields and armor. He takes the pole, calling it the title of liberty, and bows himself to the earth, praying mightily unto his God for the blessings of liberty to rest upon his brethren, as long as a band of Christians should remain to possess the land. That wasn't even a name they had chosen for themselves, although they owned it once it was given them. Verse 14, Thus were all the true believers of Christ who belonged to the church of God, called by those who did not belong to the church. Seems like it was some kind of term of derision to begin with. We see the same thing in the New Testament, by the way. It wasn't the Christians who called themselves that first. It's not till the book of Acts where it talks about a group being called Christians most likely by Jews, that wanted to keep brand purity for themselves. You are not Judaism fulfilled. You are Judaism rejected. We're going to have to come up with a new name for you. You followers of the so-called Christ. Well, there you are, Christians. Perhaps something similar is going on here. After all, since so many of these dissenters were Nephites, they probably wanted to hold on to the name Nephites themselves but not believing Nephites, not religious Nephites, not Christian Nephites. 15, though, those who did belong to the church were faithful, and all those who were true believers in Christ took upon them gladly the name of Christ, or Christians, as they were called, because of their belief in Christ who should come. Why didn't we think of that ourselves? We espouse the cause of Christ, so why not be Christians? That's the sense you get in verse 16. At this time, Moroni prayed that the cause of the Christians and the freedom of the land might be favored. That's why Moroni, through the next few verses, goes throughout the land, lifting the title of liberty, planting it everywhere he could, hoisting it on every tower in all the land. And the people came running, armor clad, garments rent, ready to make the same covenant and pursue the same cause that Moroni was calling them to. So see how often it comes up. 46.35, they covenanted to support the cause of freedom. 48.10, they maintained that which was called by their enemies the cause of Christians, which included liberty and lands, families and peace. And I love this one, the right to live unto the Lord their God. That's beautifully put, to live unto the Lord. Can I not claim the privilege of doing that? Chapter 50, verse 39, 
When Pahoran is appointed chief judge, he's charged to support and maintain the cause of God all his days. In 5410, they promise we will maintain our religion and the cause of our God. 5611, we may console ourselves in this point, they say of the righteous casualties, that they have died in the cause of their country and of their God. Yea, and they are happy. Even death cannot rob one of their happiness when you are fighting for a cause worth giving your life to. 58.12, the cause of our liberty. 58.16, the cause of our freedom. 58.28, the cause of my country. 58.30, the cause of our freedom. 61.14, the cause of our Redeemer and our God. 62.1, the cause of his country. 62.11, the cause of freedom. Again from Joseph Smith. Shall we not go on in so great a cause? We have truth worth fighting for. Privileges worth claiming. A gospel worth living and worth sharing. Worth defending. Is there not a cause? There is, and especially when you compare it to the other causes that are out there. It's amazing to see how much time and effort people put to lesser causes. Possessions, entertainment, sports teams. There's so many causes, but they are so weak compared to the cause of Christ. Better cause indeed. Moroni understood this difference which is why I love what he says in chapter 60. I know this is next week's material, but it's worth seeing in this context. Blasting those who have dissented from the Nephites, he says that your iniquity is for the cause of your love of glory and the vain things of the world. There's your ambition and greed, like always. Your cause was love of glory and vanity? Really? That's what's motivating you this whole time? What makes you willing to risk the lives of people you care nothing about so you can build your own kingdom? What kind of a cause is that? No wonder in those rare moments of clarity, when these enemies began really contemplating the cause that they had espoused, they recognized how weak it was and began to be doubtful concerning the justice of that cause. Now, that's one of my favorite things in these chapters, to be inspired by a glorious cause. There is so much more, though, that the Nephites did in order to defend that cause. And so how did they fight the good fight? What are some principles here in the war chapters that we can apply to our own circumstance? I think one worth pointing out is in chapter 43, verse 17, when we first get to meet our hero through these chapters, Captain Moroni. We'll talk more about him a little later. But this detail, when you first meet him, verse 16, you learn his name, Moroni, and 17, you learn his age. He was only, so here's Mormon letting you know how surprising that was to him as a military leader. He was only 20 and five years old when he was appointed chief captain over the armies of the Nephites. How do we fight the good fight? Well, number one, we start young. We equip the youth with opportunities to lead, to serve, to defend the faith, to build the kingdom. We allow the rising generation to take the lead. And having spent the last 20 years of my life with the rising generation, 
they're ready for it. Especially as we begin earlier and earlier to prepare them to lead out in the cause of Christ. Let no man despise thy youth, Paul said to a young Timothy. It didn't seem to phase Moroni that he was only 25. Whenever God wants to make a difference, he seems to start with the young. A young David, a young Samuel, a 14-year-old Joseph Smith. So don't wait to be old to make a difference. Make it right now. And in fact, don't wait to be somebody to make a difference. Because you can be a nobody in the world's eyes and make a huge difference in the eyes of God. What I love about the scene in chapter 44, when Captain Moroni is fighting against the forces of Zarahemla, and there's a brief pause in the battle where Moroni is really hoping that Zarahemla will just finally lay down the weapons of war and promise not to take them up again. Well, in a fit of rage, Zarahemla grabs his weapons and rushes Moroni. And what happens? This is 44.12. Behold, one of Moroni's soldiers, oh, just one of them, We don't know who he was. We don't know his name. We don't know anything about him. He was just one of the soldiers. But he smote Zarahemna's weapon to the earth, broke it by the hilt, ended up scalping Zarahemna, and then taking that scalp, lifting it on the tip of his sword, and giving a speech that would make any coach in his locker room envious. It turned the tide of that battle. Many of Zarahemna's men sought the courage of Moroni's servant and surrendered. A servant whose name we just don't know. So start young. Another thing, put on the whole armor of God. That was Paul's counsel to the Ephesians, right? Recognizing that we're not battling against flesh and blood, but against the powers of darkness in high places. Then take upon yourself, put on the whole armor of God. In chapter 43, verse 18, Captain Moroni makes sure that his men are well armed. They have swords and scimitars and all manner of weapons, but the Lamanites did too. What was different about them was verse 19. Moroni had prepared for his people breastplates and arm shields, shields to defend their heads, and also they were dressed with thick clothing. Verse 20, the army of Zarahemla was not prepared with any such things. They had their swords and scimitars, their bows and their arrows, their stones and their slings. But other than that, they were naked, other than a loincloth. Well, the Zoramites and Amalekites wore a little bit more than that. But again, no armor, though. And as a result, in 21, they were exceedingly afraid of the armies of the Nephites because of their armor, notwithstanding their number being so much greater than the Nephites. Preparation was more intimidating than population here. They are ready for us. They're prepared. They're protected. And if we will take upon ourselves the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, loins girt about with truth, our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, the shield of faith, wherewith we can quench all the fiery darts of the adversary. Remember that wicked Zoramite Jacob, who wouldn't face Moroni on the plains, didn't want a fair fight, only came after Tiancum when he thought that, oh, oh, that's just a small force away from the strength of the group. Now, if we are well-armed and well-armored, then we're not the type of person that most people want to attack. It's ironic to me that the Lamanites didn't expect this from the Nephites. They thought they'd be easy prey. They either thought they wouldn't fight back or that they would easily succumb to the Lamanites' attack. 
Often it seems that those who attack our faith don't think that we'll be able to defend our beliefs or respond in a way, again, not contentiously or confrontationally, but that asks them to defend the justness of their cause. Well, in this particular case, when the Lamanites decide, well, we're going to go elsewhere. This armor is intimidating, and so we're not going to fight here. We'll go somewhere else. And at the end of 22, it says that they did not suppose that the armies of Moroni would know whither they had gone. So here's another principle in winning our war. It's to know what the enemy is up to. Now, that may be easier said than done. How do we know what the enemy is up to? Well, notice what Moroni does in 23 and 24. As soon as the Lamanites have departed into the wilderness, Moroni sends spies into the wilderness to watch their camp. Now, I'm not saying we have to go plant moles in anti-Mormon camps, but notice this detail. There are spies, in other words, people who are sent to see. He also sent other men to go talk to Alma, knowing of his prophecies. So here's someone who can prophesy. And so he desired him that he should inquire of the Lord whether the armies of the Nephites should go to defend themselves against the Lamanites. And as a result, the word of the Lord comes to Alma, and Alma informs the messengers of Moroni and tells them exactly where the army is going to go. So we need some spies, someone who can see. Go talk to the prophet and ask him to ask the Lord. We need someone who can prophesy. And when the message comes to the prophet and he informs Moroni's men, well, we need someone who can reveal these things to us. We need prophets, seers, and revelators to help us know what the enemy is up to, to let us know how we should be preparing for the struggles that we'll face in our day. In 26, Moroni gathers the people together to defend their lands and their countries. And they are prepared against the time of the coming of the Lamanites. They know where to go. They know what to do. They know how to prepare. And much of that preparation consists of gathering together. It's one of the reasons we gather in the church, to know how best to prepare for whatever we face. Well, knowing exactly where the enemy is coming, they get ready for it. And in verse 33, great phrase, having placed his army according to his desire, he was prepared to meet them. Do we trust that our captain is placing the army according to his desire? That you've been called to certain places or positions because that is where the Lord needs you on the battlefield? That prophets and apostles are called for such a time as this? That local leaders and even young or nameless saints are stationed, are placed according to God's desire, prepared to meet the enemy? Now, it's not enough to be in the right place. We need to be in the right spirit through all of this. And I'm amazed at one moment in the battle with Zarahemla. Actually, two moments. It happens twice. The first one's at the end of 43, when the men of Zarahemla are trapped and they're fighting like dragons. But inspired by their better cause, the Nephites are fighting just as diligently back. Well, at the end of chapter 43, the people of Zarahemla are terrified because they realize there's no hope for them. And in verse 54, when Moroni saw their terror, he commanded his men to stop shedding their blood. Boom. In an instant. Stop. Now, can you imagine the kind of emotion, the kind of adrenaline that's rushing through your veins as you are fighting for your life against an enemy? And yet, in a moment, you can be told, stop. And you do? That's amazing to me. 
This is passion bridled. This is emotion under complete control. In fact, when the first attempt to get Zarahemna to surrender unconditionally proves unsuccessful, that's when the servant scalps him and everything, and there's this other big battle that ensues, a second time, as soon as it looks like they might be ready to surrender, Captain Moroni stops them, and they stop immediately. I mean, I'm impressed with the strength of this army, but I think I'm even more impressed by their self-control. Remember section 121? That it's okay to reprove betimes with sharpness, but when? When moved upon by the Holy Ghost. I think a lot of times we are sharp with people, we are reproving of others, and we're moved upon by something, but not necessarily the Holy Ghost. To check ourselves, what spirit is motivating us? We'll see later that Captain Moroni is not a bloodthirsty man. The bad guys here, Zarahemna, Amalekiah, Amaron, Morianton, they don't care about their people at all. They don't care about the blood of their own men, let alone the blood of their enemies. They are moved upon by a spirit, but it's a spirit of ambition and a spirit of greed. Captain Moroni and his men are moved upon by a spirit, but it's a spirit of self-defense and self-preservation, a spirit that is willing to defend the cause of Christ, even to the laying down of their own lives. But that spirit is always in control so that they don't lower themselves to some kind of animal nature where they're just taking out anger or frustration on an enemy. No, the moment it seems like that enemy might be ready to stop, we're ready to stop too. I don't know how often we see bridled passion in an army, but we see it here. Moroni does the same thing in chapter 52, by the way, when it looks like Jacob's men might be ready to surrender. The moment it looks like they might be willing to lay down their swords, Moroni and his men lower their own. It's amazing to me. Another key element of waging and winning this war you start to see in chapter 44, verse 3, this is during the first pause in the fight between Zarahemna and Moroni. He's compared the two causes in verse 2. You're after power. We're not. We're just here to defend our religion and our rights. But then in verse 3, ye behold that the Lord is with us. And that makes all the difference. It's his cause after all, right? Well, he will champion that cause. He is the Lord of hosts, as in Lord of armies, if the army is willing to claim him as their own. The Lord is with us, because we're with him. And ye behold that he has delivered you into our hands. He has. He's behind this victory. It's not us. And now I would that ye should understand that this is done unto us because of our religion and our faith in Christ. And now ye see that ye cannot destroy this our faith. Oh, to be able to say that. That is true unshakenness. You cannot destroy this our faith. Verse 4, ye see that this is the true faith of God. Ye see that God will support and keep and preserve us so long as we are faithful unto him and unto our faith and our religion. And never will the Lord suffer that we shall be destroyed except we should fall into transgression and deny our faith. That's the reason we're winning. Remember that interesting scene when King Lamoni is passed out and all of his people are there and Ammon's passed out too and the queen's down and the servants are down and there's this argument that takes place. Abish is over in the corner going, this is not the missionary experience that I was praying for. But they're trying to figure out what's the cause of all this. And one of them says, this must be the great spirit that's always been on the Nephites' side. That's such an interesting admission. 
the Nephites always seem to beat us, even though I swear we're stronger than they are. I swear we outnumber them. I mean, we look way scarier in our loincloth than they do in their thick clothing. But what an interesting admission. It's like they have God on their side. Well, they do. Captain Moroni knows it, admits it, acknowledges it, announces it, really. The very thing you are fighting against is the thing that is enabling us to beat you. You're angry with us because of our religion, he said at the end of two. Well, it's our religion that's making us win. That's it. God is on our side because we choose to be on his. And you can too. That's why he says in verse 5, Now Zarahemna, I command you, in the name of that all-powerful God, who has strengthened our arms, that we have gained power over you by our faith, by our religion, by our rites of worship, by our church, by the sacred support which we owe to our wives and our children. Sounds a lot like the title of liberty, right? Again, he's invoking the cause. By that liberty which binds us to our lands and our country. And then I love this one. And also by the maintenance of the sacred word of God to which we owe all our happiness by all that is most dear unto us, he challenges them to lay down their weapons and come not again to war. But you catch what he said? So much of this was focused on his own faith. But I love that second to last line. What do they owe all their happiness to? He's talked about what they owe their success to. We owe our success to the strength of God. But related to that, we owe our happiness to the same sources. Now read it closely. He didn't just say, we owe all our happiness to the sacred word of God. There's one added phrase. No, we owe our happiness to our maintenance of the sacred word of God. Just having the scriptures isn't what brings us happiness. But maintaining the scriptures, keeping them in good working order, that's what maintenance is, right? And so maintaining God's word, making sure it is doing for us what it was designed to do, fortifying our faith primarily, such that you cannot destroy it. If I am maintaining the word of God in my life, then my faith cannot be destroyed. Whoso treasureth up the word shall not be deceived, the Lord promises in Joseph Smith Matthew. Maintain the word. You will be happy. You will be strong. You will be free. You'll be close to God. And he will protect and preserve and deliver you. His word promises us that. Well, as could probably be expected, Zarahemna does not give God the credit the way Moroni does. He says in verse 9, We are not of your faith, and we don't believe that it is God who has delivered us into your hands. It was your cunning that has preserved you from our swords. It's your breastplates and your shields that have preserved you. He looks for a purely naturalistic explanation of the Nephites' victory. It's the arm of flesh not the arm of God that has saved you. But Moroni knows better. And when you see the end of that battle, in chapter 45, begin, it says that now it came to pass that the people of Nephi were exceedingly rejoiced. Why? Because they won? Because their trusty shields and breastplates came through for them? No, because the Lord had again delivered them out of the hands of their enemies. Therefore they gave thanks. Unto the armor bearers? No, unto the Lord their God. In fact, they did fast much and pray much, and they did worship God. 
with exceedingly great joy. What a beautiful verse. To God goes the glory. He deserves all the credit for these victories. And if we will rely on the strength of the Lord, I can hear Elder Bednar saying that as he's gone around the church, especially talking with young single adults that may be struggling. He's often encouraged them to go through the Book of Mormon and look for every instance of the strength of the Lord. He says, write them down. Send me an essay of a page or two about what you learned about studying the strength of the Lord in the Book of Mormon. It's life-changing for those young single adults who do it. Well, it was not only life-changing, it was life-saving for the Nephite armies who relied on the strength of the Lord. Now, beyond what we've seen so far about espousing the cause of Christ, of starting young, of putting on the whole armor of God, of knowing what the enemy is up to, and being well-disciplined and following the right spirit, of relying on the strength of the Lord. Scattered throughout these war chapters, there are these beautiful little gems showing what the Nephites did to prepare for these battles. If ye are prepared, the Lord says, ye shall not fear. And so the Nephites' preparation is a glorious thing. We see a lot of that in chapter 48, kind of thick into these battles. 48.8, it says that Captain Moroni had been strengthening the armies of the Nephites, erecting small forts or places of resort, throwing up banks of earth round about to enclose these armies, building walls of stone to encircle them about, round about their cities and the borders of their lands, yea, all round about the land. You see all he's doing to prepare them? This isn't happening while they're fighting. By then it'd be too late to do it. He's doing this all in advance. In verse 9, in their weakest fortifications, he did place the greater number of men. And thus he did fortify and strengthen the land which was possessed by the Nephites. How do you think weak things become strong? We fortify them. We recognize our weakest places and send the greatest number of reinforcements to be able to strengthen them. We see that a little bit later when Amalickiah goes to one city thinking it's going to be easy prey. Again, we learned that from Jacob, right? We all, don't, don't, we're not looking for battles, open battles on the fields and plains. We're looking to pick off the weak and the wounded from the edge of the herd. The last thing we want is a fair battle. So when Amalekiah's army first goes to one city, it was Ammonihah, I believe. It had been rebuilt after the Lamanites had destroyed it years before. They expect it to be an easy victory. And it's not, because it is so well prepared with all that Captain Moroni has been doing to fortify things. Well, just like Zarahemna didn't want to fight a bunch of armor-clad Nephites, well, Amalekiah didn't want to fight such a well-fortified city. Again, preparation is more intimidating than population any time. So what do they do? Well, let's go to this other spot. How do they pick the next spot? Oh, it's even weaker than Ammonihah was, which is exactly what Captain Moroni knew they would do. And so what had he done in that city? Fortified that one even more than the first. We've got to know our weak spots, our chinks in the armor. The dissenters probably do. The adversary knows that about us, I imagine. He's seen where we've fallen in the past. So, of course, he's going to keep hitting those old spots. We've got to fortify them with greater numbers and stronger defenses. We have to help the Lord help us turn weak things into strengths. But beyond the physical fortifications, and we'll see more of that in a moment, but look back a verse 
at 48 verse 7. While Amalickiah had been obtaining power by fraud and deceit, that's him working towards his cause, Moroni, on the other hand, was working towards his. By doing what? He had been preparing the minds of the people to be faithful unto the Lord their God. I love that that's the first thing mentioned here. Yes, he'll talk about these small forts and these banks of earth and these stone walls. But even before we prepare our fortifications, we have to prepare our faith. Before we prepare the mounds of earth, we've got to prepare the minds of the people to be obedient, to be faithful unto God. That was President Hinckley's warning right after 9-11. Our safety lies in our repentance. Our security lies in our obedience to the commandments of God. Physical preparation is essential, but it still plays second fiddle to the spiritual preparation that must come before. We see more of that kind of preparation in chapter 49. This is what I was referring to a second ago, when they beef up the city of Ammonihah and then beef up the city of Noah next door. In fact, it wasn't just those two. If you look at 49 verse 13, Moroni had fortified or had built forts of security for every city in all the land roundabout. He wanted to fortify every weakness, give the enemy nowhere to go. Those first few verses in chapter 49 describe more of the things that they did. Casting up dirt roundabout, shielding themselves from arrows and stones, since that's what they fought with. I love that in verse 1. They cast up dirt roundabout to shield them from the arrows and the stones of the Lamanites. For behold, they fought with stones and with arrows. Well, that's good. Again, know the enemy's weapons and prepare yourself to defend against them. Does yourself no good to defend yourself against a weapon that the enemy isn't using? So what is he using against us? Prepare for that. They were looking for easy prey. Interesting phrase. They always do. But in verse 5, they were astonished exceedingly because of the wisdom of the Nephites in preparing their places of security. There's that word again, preparing. The irony is the Lamanites thought that they were the ones better prepared this time. In verse 6, the Lamanites had better numbers, so they thought they had that going for them. Well, they had better numbers before. But what had scared them off earlier? Well, the Nephites' preparation in terms of armor. Well, okay, fine, we'll catch up to them then. So in verse 6, they had prepared themselves with shields and breastplates and everything else. It's like, ha-ha, now. It's kind of an arms race. The Nephites had armor. We didn't. Well, now we have armor. And since we still have more people than they do, now we can win. But what had the Nephites been doing? Staying one step ahead. Because while the Lamanites were catching up with armor, the Nephites went ahead with fortifications. You see verse 7, the Lamanites were prepared with their armor, and thus supposed they could easily overpower and subject their brethren to the yoke of bondage. But verse 8, to their uttermost astonishment, the Nephites were prepared for them. You see, if the enemy is preparing, then we have to prepare even more. And they prepared in a manner which never had been known among the children of Lehi. In verse 9, the Lamanites and Amalickiahites were exceedingly astonished at their manner of preparation for war. It's all about that preparation. I love the phrase he uses in verse 11. Moroni had altered the management of affairs. It's almost like these Amalekiahites and Lamanites come knocking on the doors of these old cities that had so easily surrendered to them before. And there's a big sign out front that says, under new management. He had altered the management of affairs. 
And in what way was it altered? More preparation than ever before. President Irene has warned us that what was good enough in the past is not good enough in the present, let alone the future, that we have to get better because the enemy's getting worse. Whatever degree of spiritual strength we once had and was sufficient is no longer so. I call this the parable of the treadmill. I'd go to the gym when I was in college and I knew that if I had a copy of Rocky IV, I could run forever. Without it, I'd get tired after a mile or two. But if I put in, this is back in the old days, if I had my, my video cassette and I'd stick it in and watch on the TV screen as I ran. Rocky IV is the one against Drago, the Russian, right? And it shows all that Drago is doing to prepare. And it, I remember the scene would go back and forth to show he's in this state-of-the-art gym taking steroids and getting all ready for the fight. And Rocky's out in the barn lifting rocks or chopping wood running up a mountainside. Even that applies to this really, really well in terms of this arms race, so to speak. If the enemy is preparing, am I preparing even more? But for me as a runner during that, on all these intense scenes when the music was loud and Rocky's out there doing everything he could, I would start cranking up the treadmill until when Rocky was running up the mountain, seriously, I was at highest speed and highest incline. I could only last long enough for him to get to the top of the mountain. Then it was like, <laughs> get back down before I get thrown off the back of this treadmill. It was always funny. I could like feel all the eyes in the gym start to turn to look what is going on because I was <sighs> just running as fast as I possibly could. And then they'd see me staring, fixated at something. They'd fall in my eyes, see that it was Rocky Four up there, and they're like, oh, okay, proceed. But I learned something on that treadmill. If you run the same speed you always have and someone starts to increase the speed or the incline, you will not stay on it unless you start picking up speed too. Do you sense the opposition increasing? That the adversary is cranking up the speed on the treadmill? That's why we can't just do the same things we've always done. And Captain Moroni is the perfect example of that. As he alters the management of affairs. We've seen a lot of altering of management under President Nelson's watch. And I think those changes are inspired in moving us towards greater preparation for whatever might come our way. So much of this altered management under Moroni's direction had to do with preparation. Preparing the minds of the people, preparing the fortifications, preparing his armies for war. In fact, if you look at chapter 50, verse 1, this describes Moroni to a T. It came to pass that Moroni did not stop making preparations for war. He never felt like he was done. I'm all prepared, ready for anything the Lamanites send my way. He just kept adding to his preparations. Like that arms race I was talking about with Rocky and Drago. We started with armor while the Lamanites caught up. We added fortifications, and the Lamanites prepared for that. Well, we're going to need to increase those fortifications still further. That's what he does in chapter 50. This is a pretty famous passage. If I were an artist, I would love to draw something along these lines because fortifications 2.0 were far superior to 1.0. Chapter 50, verse 1, they dig up heaps of earth round about all the cities throughout all the land. So he leaves nothing unfortified. And by digging and then heaping, you've got two types of fortification side by side, a trench and then a mound. But even that's not going to be enough. So in verse 2, he constructs a work of timbers on top of the mound. 
And then in verse 3, he puts a frame of pickets on top of the timbers. And then in verse 4, he causes towers to be erected that overlook those pickets. But since those towers would be out in the open and exposed, let's put places of security on those towers. And while we're at it, let's put stones in those towers so that they can be cast down from the top thereof. Since stones don't just appear in the tops of towers, they're going to have to be brought up. And that has to be done in advance. It's amazing all that Moroni is doing to prepare. It's such a powerful word. Remember Alma and the poor of the Zoramites at the Ramiemptum. He saw that their hearts were in a preparation to receive the word. Or the most powerful of all, when Jesus finally talked about his own atonement. He doesn't do that until Doctrine and Covenants section 19, describing the pain that he suffered. But he says, glory be to the Father. I partook and finished my preparations unto the children of men. That's what he called his atonement. What Jesus did in Gethsemane and on Calvary was preparation, preparing himself with perfect empathy to be able to understand our every circumstance and meet our every need. You want to win the war? Then prepare and don't stop preparing. Later in the same chapter, in verse 9, it talks about Moroni driving all the Lamanites out of the east wilderness. They'd cleared that territory, but they didn't leave it cleared. As soon as the Lamanites were out, he brought Nephites in. He caused the inhabitants who were in the land of Zarahemla and in the land round about to go forth into the east wilderness to possess the land. He didn't want there to be vacant space because driving out Lamanites and then leaving it there was just an invitation for the Lamanites to come back. This is like the Savior's parable in Matthew 12 about leaving a room empty, swept, and garnished after you've cast out the evil habits that used to occupy it. They're just going to come back. Don't just displace, replace. Bring light in to keep at bay that darkness. It's like Jacob 5, the allegory of the olive tree. Cut out the bad branches as the good branches grow. You want to cast Lamanites out of your wilderness? Great, but bring Nephites in to take their place. One of the great phrases in verse 11, where it says that Moroni spent time fortifying the line between the Nephites and the Lamanites, between the land of Zarahemla and the land of Nephi. One of the adversary's favorite ways to get us to cross certain lines is to blur them so that we can't really see the line as we're crossing it. The last thing he wants is black and white clarity. He wants shades of gray, a gradual slope, soft underfoot, with no signs or sharp turns. It's the way C.S. Lewis describes it. So what an important tactic to fortify the line. I know exactly where it is, the things I should not do, the, thing, the line I cannot cross. Remember the creation account in Genesis. Several of those first days were about dividing things clearly. We need to distinguish between light and darkness so we can tell the difference between good and evil. We need to distinguish between sea and land, separate them, so we can tell what is firm and immovable as opposed to shifting cultural currents. Another aspect, and this is kind of an interesting one, has to do with entrances. We tend to think more about the fortifications and the trenches and the mounds and the timbers and the pickets and the places of security and everything else. But there did need to be a way for the Nephites to come in and out. And that was their entrance. In fact, it would be the Lamanites' only entrance as well. But as long as the Nephites knew that, they could fortify it. There's something about 
channeling the challenges into one place that can be defended, as opposed to leaving yourself open to attack from any direction. So this is you deciding on the entrance. It's back in chapter 49. It shows up like four times in this chapter. In verse 4, it says, The Nephites had dug up a ridge of earth round about them, which was so high the Lamanites could not cast their stones and their arrows at them, that they might take effect. Neither could they come upon them, save it was by their place of entrance. See what they're doing? We're going to make it impossible for them to attack us from these other areas. If you want to come in, you come in through the entrance, and I'll be ready for you there. It shows up again in verse 18. The Lamanites could not get into their forts of security by any other way save by the entrance. The Nephites had closed off every other possibility. Verse 20 says it again. Thus they were prepared, yea, a body of their strongest men, with their swords and their slings, to smite down all who should attempt to come into their place of security by the place of entrance. You see, we won't have enough forces to place these strong men at every possible place. But if we can limit the Lamanites' attacks to the entrance, then we can place our strongest forces there. And then there was no other option for the Lamanites. In 21, the captains of the Lamanites brought up their armies before the place of entrance and began to contend with the Nephites there to get into their places of security. It's so wise on the part of the Nephites to decide, this is where I want you to attack me. I'll make that your only option. I remember in high school playing football and hating tackling drills when I was the one that had to tackle. We had this one drill where you'd be standing there kind of shuffling your feet and a running back would come straight at you and you were not supposed to let them pass. This was open field tackling. But more times than not, the running back would give me a head fake. I'd fall for it. He'd go around the other side and my coaches would let me know about it. I kept trying to tell him, I don't know which way he's going to go. And one of my coaches said, then you decide for him. And I was like, what are you talking about? He can go whichever way he wants. I can't determine that. And the coach said, true, but can't you make it more likely he'll go in one direction more than the other? You pick a side first. Don't just stand right in front of him. If you start guarding one side, chances are he'll take the easier path and you'll know which way to go to tackle him. That was a game changer for me. And a similar principle is being followed here. Channel the enemy to one place, knowing that they have to pass through this if they're going to come and attack me. When it comes to conversations with people that are attacking faith, I have found that deciding in advance on certain places of entrance can be a real help. I'm not saying, well, plan this question to Bible bash them. I learned the hard way on my mission that Bible bashes or contention in general drives away the spirit. And you lose even when you win. But in terms of helping someone decide to lay down their arms, to live and let live, it is helpful to have certain entrances that you channel the conversation through. For example, when I'm having an interfaith discussion, some other Christian, typically a Bible believer that wants to throw the restored gospel under the bus, one place of entrance I always channel the conversation to is the need for prophetic interpretation of Scripture. Because otherwise... All the Bible believers in the world can disagree on what they say the Bible is saying to them. You can get the Bible to say almost anything if you just rest it enough. That's what Joseph Smith described. They understand the same passages of Scripture so differently as to destroy all confidence in settling the question by an appeal to the Bible. So I'm not trying to bait my conversation partners, but I will always ask how they interpret the Scripture in that direction. 
when others have interpreted it some other way. To me, it really does boil back down to the need for prophets and apostles to interpret Scripture. So that is an entrance that I channel the conversation towards. If I'm talking to an anti-Mormon, especially an ex-Mormon, one entrance that the conversation always needs to pass through for me is the Book of Mormon. If they reject the possibility of translating this by the gift and power of God, then what are we left with? Some humanistic explanation that Joseph created, wrote the book somehow? Well, I'd love for the conversation to pass through that entrance because I think that story takes a whole lot more faith than the story that Joseph Smith told. The Book of Mormon is just too complicated, too rich. There is a depth here that I don't think any mere mortal could create on his or her own. At least Joseph Smith couldn't. If it's a skeptical secularist that is talking to me, attacking me for my belief in fairy tales about God or religion, one entrance I want the conversation to pass through is what the scriptures call the joy of the saints. That's what Alma was doing with Korahor. Do you really think that we do this for free, I might add, for any other reason than to rejoice in the joy of our brethren? You're accusing me of living by stories? Well, if there is no God, then that's all we've got. And you're living by stories too. I find such happiness and meaning and purpose in mine. That is the joy of the saints. Then why abandon this so-called story when all anyone else might have to replace it is some other story? No more true and perhaps a whole lot less joyful. Even when it comes to winning the war that's waging within, one entrance that I want every thought, every word, every desire to pass through is the simple question of what would Jesus do? Look unto me in every thought, he said, right? Channel every thought, every conversation through that checkpoint, through that entrance. Would Jesus do this? If I can honestly ask that question, not many Lamanites are coming through my front door. With all these fortifications and preparations that Moroni is engaging in, no wonder this is true from chapter 50, verse 12. Thus Moroni with his armies, which did increase daily because of the assurance of protection which his works did bring forth unto them. You see that? All this work of preparation, all these assurances of protection, weren't just preserving his armies. They were causing them to grow. They were attracting fresh recruits. There's something about this guy. I want to be on this team. It looks like it's the winning one. At least this looks like a place of safety. And those seem to be increasingly rare. I love something that Boyd K. Packer said the year before the proclamation on the family was announced. He said, across the world, those who now come by the tens of thousands will inevitably come as a flood to where the family is safe. In a world of chaos and confusion, to come to a place with clear standards, an understanding of where we are and who we are and what we should be doing. Section 45 of the Doctrine and Covenants describes Zion as a place that attracts anyone of all nations who wants to be free of the war and contention that is raging around them. Because Zion is the only place where peace reigns. The assurance of protection. We have that to offer. And as a result, our numbers increase daily. Now, before we wrap up, I want to spend a few minutes with Captain Moroni. He is our hero through these chapters. We met the bad guys last time. Zarahemna, Amalekiah, 
Morianton and the Kingmen, Jacob the Zoramite. We'll spend more time with Amaron next week. But it's tough to beat Captain Moroni. Before we meet him, though, can I just say a couple words about Tiancum? Tiancum was like the Navy SEAL of the Nephite army. The guy was Rambo, commando missions. If an army couldn't do something, just send a one-man wrecking crew in named Tiancum. He's the one most famous for this midnight belly crawl across the beaches outside Bountiful until he crosses enemy lines and finds King Amalekiah's tent and lifts the flap and throws his javelin and kills the king in his sleep and then runs back to his lines and wakes up his men to get them ready to finish the battle on the morrow. The guy is amazing. Worth meeting at least. The story I just told you is retold in chapter 51 of Alma. And in verse 31, notice this detail about them. Tiancum and his men were great warriors. Every man of Tiancum did exceed the Lamanites in their strength and in their skill of war, insomuch that they did gain advantage over the Lamanites. The best of the best, you got to be, if you want to be one of Tiancum's men. This is like David's mighty men. Or one place in the Old Testament where it talks about the Benjamites having certain skill sets in battle that were superior to any other group. These are the few, the proud, the men of Tiancum. And it makes me wonder, what kind of a soldier, spiritually speaking, am I? How's my strength and my skill compared to that which is required of me? Now, like I said, in this particular battle, they had fought all day. That's what it says in 32. They did slay them even until it was dark. But while everyone else slept that night, in 33, Tiancum and his servant, another no-namer, kind of like Moroni's servant that took on Zarahemna, these two stole forth and went out by night and went into the camp of Amalekiah. Sleep had overpowered them because of their much fatigue. I'm sure Tiancum and his servant were tired too. They also had borne the labors and heat of the day. But in 34, Tiancum steals privately into the tent of the king and slays him, and then returns back to his camp, where his men were sleeping throughout the whole thing, and he gets them up and gets them ready. Remember that great stanza from Longfellow's poem about the ladder of Augustine? The heights by great men reached and kept were not attained by sudden flight, but they, while their companions slept, were toiling upward in the night. I love those lines. The whole poem is amazing. And it's not just some kind of worldly ambition that you should burn the midnight oil. The poem is actually about overcoming your own weaknesses. It's exactly the kind of spiritual warfare these chapters have been teaching us. He didn't take time off for bad behavior. Even after dark, when others are spiritually sleeping, Tiancum was pursuing victory in a war that mattered. It's interesting also the timing of this. Because the next morning, when his men were up and ready, and then the Lamanite army awoke and saw that their own leader was dead in his own tent, according to chapter 52, verse 1, that was on the first morning of the first month. What an omen to begin a new year. But in Tiancum's case, what a great time to take advantage of a new beginning. We can do that in our wars as well. And you don't have to wait till January 1st to create a New Year's resolution. Resolutions can come at any time. Every time you partake of the sacrament, Happy New Year. Start again, clean the slate, begin fresh, and take advantage of a new beginning. Well, there's more that could be said of Tiancum, but go back with me to chapter 48 
and let's spend a few last minutes with Captain Moroni. 48 is the one where we see him preparing mines in 7 and preparing fortifications in 8, preparing weak places and making them strong in 9, preparing to support their liberty in 10. He's as good as they come. In fact, it's hard to beat the praise that Mormon heaps upon him in verse 17. I don't think Mormon says anything this nice about anybody else except God. But of Moroni, he says in verse 17, that if all men had been and were and ever would be like unto Moroni, behold, the very powers of hell would have been shaken forever. Yea, the devil would never have power over the hearts of the children of men. Who's writing that? Ah, yes, a military man, Mormon. Looking back at his hero, it seems to me. In fact, what did Mormon name his own son? Moroni. Son, I want you to be like this Captain Moroni that I've read about. He brought his people through dark days, just like we are trying to do. Be like him. All those words of preparation lead up to verse 11, where we really start to see Moroni himself. Verse 11, a strong and a mighty man. Those were the same words used to describe Amalekiah. But think about what Moroni is dedicating his strength and might to accomplish. See that ye serve God with all your heart, might, mind, and strength. He is offering that to him. His strength, his might. His next phrase is his mind. He was a man of a perfect understanding. Same word was used to describe the sons of Mosiah. Man of a sound understanding, since they had searched the scriptures diligently to know the word of God. Moroni was a man that did not delight in bloodshed, even though he was surrounded by it. He never let it get into him. That can be a hard thing to do as a soldier. But he never fought to satiate some thirst for blood. It says that he was a man whose soul did joy in the liberty and the freedom of his country and his brethren from bondage and slavery. That's why he fought. It was a necessary evil for him. And as we saw in his battles with Zarahemna, the moment it looked like there might be some other way, his was passion bridled. He could stop an advancing army in a heartbeat if it looked like peace could be achieved some other way. Verse 12, he was a man whose heart did swell with thanksgiving to his God for the many privileges. And that's what the worship of God is, a privilege that we claim. He claimed it and thanked God for its receipt, for the privileges and blessings which God bestowed upon his people. He was a man who did labor exceedingly for the welfare and safety of his people. He had faith it would come. He was willing to put action behind that faith and then extend gratitude whenever it was given. Verse 13, he was a man who was firm in the faith of Christ. We don't get to see a whole lot of his spiritual side. He's so busy as a military commander. But a man who was firm in the faith of Christ, it was the cause of Christ, after all, that he was fighting for. He had sworn with an oath to defend his people, his rights, his country, his religion, even to the loss of his blood. He didn't want to shed the blood of others. No doubt he didn't want to have his own blood shed either. But if that's what it came to, he was willing to observe his covenants by sacrifice, as the Doctrine and Covenants says. What did that faith in Christ consist of? Verse 14, the Nephites were taught to defend themselves against their enemies, even to the shedding of blood, if it were necessary. But they were taught never to give an offense, never to raise the sword, except it were against an enemy, and that's only to preserve their lives. Moroni learned those lessons well. 
Verse 15, this was their faith, that by so doing, God would prosper them in the land. Or in other words, if they were faithful in keeping the commandments of God, that he would prosper them in the land. And here's how he would help them. Either warn them to flee or to prepare for war according to their danger. Fight or flight, right? And there are times that either one of those is the right answer. And they trusted that the Lord would let them know which to follow to be preserved. This wasn't faith without works. This wasn't some kind of take it for granted and rest on our laurels and, hey, God said he'd prosper us, so we'll be good. No, it's God, how do you want to prosper us this time? Should we fight or flee? It's like the three rounds against Korahor back in chapter 30, where the first two rounds, the Nephites fled. They didn't want to engage with Korahor in those conversations. But the third round with Alma, Alma fought. He called out Korahor on his lies. He pushed back against his false beliefs. Our faith can be similar. In this situation, Heavenly Father, what should I do? In verse 16, they believed that God would make it known unto them whither they should go to defend themselves against their enemies. Which entrance should we defend? Choose your battles. We'll let the Lord help you in those choices. And this was the faith of Moroni. And his heart did glory in it. Not in the shedding of blood, but in doing good, in preserving his people, yea, in keeping the commandments of God, yea, and resisting iniquity. His heart was in the right place and on the right things. If everyone were like that, Satan would have no power. There doesn't seem to be any place for the adversary to attack. There's no chinks in Moroni's armor. And that, actually, is what makes verse 18 so beautiful. Because on the heels of this incredible praise, putting Moroni on this pedestal, we realize, oh, there's room up there for a lot more than him. In 18, Mormon also places up there Ammon, the son of Mosiah, all the other sons of Mosiah, Alma and his sons, for they were all men of God. He compares Captain Moroni to them. And yet the irony there is, it seems like Moroni never made a mistake. I mean, I'm sure he did. Later we'll see him actually get a little ahead of himself because of his passion. But he seems to be another one of those Mary Poppins kinds of disciples. Practically perfect in every way. And yet, as Mormon says, yeah, he's a lot like Ammon and the sons of Mosiah and Alma, all of whom had not been faithful all the time. And yet, as far as Mormon is concerned, they're all men of God. If you think that you've made too many mistakes for you to ever be mentioned in the same sentence as Captain Moroni, think again. These repentant sinners... These wayward souls that turn things around, these dissenters and apostates, they could easily have gone down that path like the Zoramites or the Amalekites, and yet they turned around. And as far as Mormon was concerned, and more importantly, as far as God is concerned, they're all alike now, men of God. And just in case we think the pedestal is now fully occupied, look at verse 19. Now behold, Helaman and his brethren, all those high priests that had been out regulating the affairs of the church, they were no less serviceable unto the people than was Moroni. So often it's the political or military leaders that capture the headlines. But like we said at the beginning of this lesson, even through all these war chapters, the kingdom of God presses forward. The caravan moves on. And this spiritual strengthening that's been going on behind the scenes is every bit as important as the more visible, noteworthy accomplishments of a Captain Moroni. 
They were no less serviceable. They did preach the word of God. They did baptize unto repentance all men whosoever would hearken unto their words. According to verse 20, it wasn't just Captain Moroni's military exploits, Tiancum's victories on the field that eventually brought the people peace. In this verse, the people did humble themselves because of the words that Helaman and his brethren had preached to them. As a result, they were highly favored of the Lord, and thus they were free from wars and contentions among themselves, even for the space of four years. Reminds me of that beautiful quote from Elder Maxwell, where he wonders where the greatest good is done, in congresses or by cradles. The shouts of war or the singing of lullabies. I love that these verses suggest that the one is no less serviceable than the other. In fact, peace might most effectively be won at home. That's what I love about that story in the book of Judges, where Deborah and Jael are in the same chapter, living through the same war. And Deborah is out leading outside the home, and Jael is within her own tent, defeating the enemy general right there. Outside the home, inside the home, military, religious, no less serviceable, as long as we're all working together for peace. You see that same idea in chapter 49, verse 30, where he says they had continual peace among them and exceedingly great prosperity in the church. Those two, I think, go hand in hand because you are seeking and receiving the blessings of God. That peace and prosperity came because of their heed and diligence, which they did give unto the word of God delivered unto them by Helaman and Shiblon and Corianton. He's back on his mission. He repented. And Ammon and his brethren, yea, and by all those who had been ordained by the holy order of God, being baptized unto repentance and sent forth to preach among the people. President Hinckley was right. Our safety lies in our repentance. Our security lies in our obedience to the commandments of God. I hope our discussion today as much as we've had to jump around from story to story and chapter to chapter, has been a blessing to you. Like it or not, we are living through war. And I don't mean the kind that we see on the evening news, although that applies as well. It is the inner battles, the wars that are waged within, that we have to learn to conquer, that we start young and put on the whole armor of God and know what the enemy is up to and discipline ourselves and follow the right spirit to rely on the strength of the Lord and do everything within our power to prepare. Most of all, to follow our captain, someone far superior even to Captain Moroni, but the captain of our soul, even Jesus Christ. A lot of what we've talked about today makes us the Nephites and places the enemy outside of us whether it's apostates and dissenters in the religious realm, or even those that simply want to prey on our pride or our possessiveness, our ambition, our greed, in hopes of pulling us away from the things that matter most. But I would also challenge you as you study these chapters, what if we're the Lamanites slash Amalekites slash Zoramites? What do we learn about ourselves in seeing the things that they fall into? Like Zarahemna's group, for example. It says, fine, we'll stop fighting now, but I'm not going to make you a promise that I never will again. Do we sometimes surrender, but not unconditionally? This is a lot like Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. 
Fine, I'll let your people go. But they can't go very far because I want to bring them back. Or fine, they can leave, but only for a brief period of time. I'll only surrender my way when the Lord asks us to surrender his. An unconditional surrender, which is the only real victory. Or maybe it's us explaining away the blessings of God, chalking victory up to physical preparation, breastplates and shields, when really it's the power of God. Do we recognize that? The choice is ours. We can see him through these battle lines if we have the eyes to see. Here the chieftain signals onward. He's calling us to come. May I close with these words from chapter 50. Verse 18, where the people of the church are prospering exceedingly, multiplying, becoming strong in the land. And here's this beautiful, thus we see. Mormon has been injecting a lot of those of late. But here's one worth seeing again as we conclude these chapters. Thus we see how merciful and just are all the dealings of the Lord. He's both. To the fulfilling of all his words unto the children of men. Yea, we can behold that his words are verified, even at this time, verified in every particular, as it says earlier in the Book of Mormon. He had said to Lehi this, Blessed art thou and thy children, and they shall be blessed inasmuch as they shall keep my commandments. They shall prosper in the land. But remember, inasmuch as they will not keep my commandments, they shall be cut off from the presence of the Lord. We see that so clearly here. In comparing groups like the Anti-Nephi-Lehites, Lamanites who become Nephites, to the Zoramites and Amalekites, Nephites who become Lamanites. Which direction are we moving in? Verse 21, we see that these promises have been verified to the people of Nephi. God is as good as his word, for he is the word. It has been their quarrelings, their contentions, yea, their murderings and their plunderings, their idolatry, their whoredoms, their abominations, which were among themselves. That's the key phrase, which brought upon them their wars and their destructions. We're doing this to ourselves. What's the old saying? We have identified the enemy. And it is us. It's the things we do to ourselves. The quarrelings and contentions among ourselves. I guess the good news is it's largely within our power to change things. Because we are our worst enemy. If we could be more welcoming and more loving towards any would-be Zoramite who's struggling in their faith. Help them back home. Turn them in their course before they fully enter Lamanite territory. If we would prepare our minds to be faithful, there would be far fewer cities to lose and then hope to regain. 22, those who were faithful in keeping the commandments of the Lord were delivered at all times, whilst thousands of their wicked brethren have been consigned to bondage or to perish by the sword or to dwindle in unbelief and mingle with the Lamanites. Those are the options, right? Spiritual bondage, so often to the chains of addiction and sin. Spiritual death, perishing because we keep plunging ourselves against the sword of the Spirit instead of wielding it in strength. Dwindling in unbelief until we can't tell the difference between us and those who never knew better. But in spite of all this, these difficult days, these challenging times, Perilous times is what Paul calls them in talking of the last days. 
not just evil days, but dangerously evil, perilous times. But in spite of it, verse 23, there never was a happier time among the people of Nephi since the days of Nephi than in the days of Moroni. War chapters and all. The assurance of protection, the promise of safety, the work of preparation, the faith in the strength of the Lord, commitment to the cause of Christ. Shall we not go on in so great a cause? Forward, brethren, and not backwards, and on, on to the victory. That victory will be found in Christ as we come unto him, following the marching orders of the captain of our souls.